Well, thank you, Gary, for praying for us and reading the scriptures. You do look very tired this morning. And uh, you guys might not know why Gary looks so tired. He is tired. He had a long day of ministry yesterday with the children's ministry in the 90 degree sun. And he came out to um, Pillar's ministry and joined us late into the evening and ministered with us and fellowshiped with us. I mentioned that because this past week I met a pastor from another church. And he was telling me that he had heard all these things about Cornerstone. And when I hear that, I kind of get defensive. <laughs> what did you hear? And he was saying, well, he's heard just a lot of good things about uh, people ministering in the body, and especially just the vibrancy and the commitment that the people at Cornerstone ha- uh, have, uh, particularly the older people. He was saying that many churches that he's seen, even in his own church, there's a real a lot of passivity, a weakness, a lack of commitment among the older people who are married and have children. Uh, once they kind of settle into a job, settle into a family, they tend to kind of take a church as a back seat, a ministry, that uh, doesn't become a priority in their lives. And he asked me how at Cornerstone we're able to keep such a high level of commitment among the members. And my response was, really, it's not my doing, it's the doing of men like Gary, men like Bob, the married men of our church, married families, wives, moms, dads. Um, their example of commitment and faithfulness trickles down to the rest of the group. And so, therefore, you know, I thank the Lord for uh, the families of Cornerstone and their faithfulness to serve the Lord. Um, it's reflected in the world is run by tired men. And so it's good to be tired for the right reasons. We're, not, we're tired not because, you know, staying up late playing video games, but we're tired because... We're staying up late, serving the Lord. It is our prayer that that would continue in the life of Cornerstone Bible Church. Also, another plug for our communion service this uh, afternoon, um, after our first service. It is for believers. Uh, We would love to invite everyone. We ask that you trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ and your faith is true and genuine, we would love to break the bread and drink the cup with you. But our Lord has ordained it, that it is to be for the church only. So if you are a believer with us, we invite you today uh, to join, join us. Talk to one of our welcoming ministry members. They'll go through the gospel message, hear your testimony. And if our faith in Christ is true and based upon scripture, please join us as we partake of a family meal with our Lord. Well, let's go to our study in, in Gospel of John chapter 10. Um, it's been a tremendous study. I've gotten a lot of good responses from, from many of you, and I, I thank you for your words of encouragement. But I've got to confess that, that it didn't start out that way. It didn't start out as an encouragement in my heart. It started out with a rebuke, actually. When I was in John, in John 9, and I was studying for this, this series of, of sermons in John 10, my first response was, Wow, these are just so basic. These, these truths are so simple and common. Um, is it going to be maybe even worth studying? Is it going to be anything really not new and really uh, edifying for the body? And my second thought was, wow, repent. <laughs> that is so wrong. You know, God just rebuked me for my intellectual snobbery. Um, my, my false view that godliness is based upon knowledge alone, that this 
spiritual superiority based upon knowledge. And I, I was rebuked by my snobbery and reading Piper's quote on Don't Waste Your Life. It's the fourth time I'm quoting it. I'll quote it one more time next week and I'll be done with this quote. But, you know, he says, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but are those who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ, you don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and set and be set on fire by them. End quote. That quote and, and God's word really rebuked my heart and it caused me to deeply study chapter 10. And it's been a blessing to my soul being reminded of these simple, glorious truths. And I believe it's been a blessing to everyone as well. Um, the first truth we looked at was that there are two categories of people in the world. That all other categories are of no significance. Your gender, your ethnicity. I read this week, if you're taller, you make more money. Did you guys read that article? You make $749 more per year if you're an inch taller. For every inch you're taller. Oh, in Christ, your height doesn't matter. Praise God. Right? There are only two categories for God that matter, whether you're a Christian or not. And that's our only concern. A second truth was that Christians belong to Christ. That Christ owns believers. That he, we are His possession. Why? Because He chose us. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. Not only that, He purchased us with His life. He gave His life as a ransom payment, so that He might purchase us for His own. And thirdly, we belong to Him because the Father gave us to Him. And we'll be studying that in, in John 17. God gave the elect to His Son because of Christ's humble sacrifice on the cross. The third truth we learned was the watershed doctrine of unconditional election. I really love that study. And last week, I mean... This whole week, this was what I was thinking about. Christians obey Christ. The fourth truth. My sheep, they follow me, period. Right? Fish swim, birds fly. I was thinking this week, I don't know what else is there. Cheerleaders cheer. I don't know what else. Like frogs jump. And Christians, what do they do? They do one thing and they obey Christ, period. Now, this morning, we finally moved from verse 27 to verse 28. We spent three weeks on one verse. Now, in verses 28 and 29, we find our fifth truth. Fifth, simple, glorious, earth-shattering truth that our prayer is that our hearts will be set on fire by this truth. Now, there are some titles that I considered for this message. One title was, Don't Be a Loser. Right? Another title was, Christians Aren't Losers. Or more of a, you know engaging title, Are You a Loser? Right? <laughs> and uh, 
I got these titles from J.C. Ryle's statement in his commentary concerning verses 28 and 29. Pastor Ryle, whom I respect so much, he wrote, quote, The importance of the doctrine contained in this text cannot, in my judgment, be overrated. The Christian who does not hold it is a great loser, end quote. So he doesn't say loser, he says great loser. And I'm glad Pastor Rao said that instead of me, because I can just quote him and not take the heat for what he has said. Now, let me interpret what Pastor Rao is saying here. He's not saying loser in the pejorative sense. He's not putting anyone down. He's saying loser in the spiritual sense. That any believer who does not hold the doctrine that is presented in verses 28 and 29 of John 10, he or she is losing out on some great spiritual blessings. I mean, monumental privileges. The joys of the Christian life if you reject this doctrine. Now, what doctrine is Pastor Rao talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of eternal security. Doctrine of eternal security, perseverance of the saints, or termed by others, the preservation of the saints. Now, uh, not so much at Cornerstone or in our circles, but if you've been a Christian for a while, you understand that this is a much debated doctrine within Christendom. Whether or not a Christian can lose his salvation. It is a heated debate that has been going on for centuries in the church, and I am not going to settle it this morning, right? No one's going to settle it until the return of Christ. It is split into two camps, known as the Calvinistic camp and the Arminian camp. On the one camp, they believe that you can lose your salvation as a believer. You can get it back, you can lose it again, get it back, and lose it again. On the other side, there is a belief that salvation is not is is eternal that you can't lose your salvation and i believe this is an unnecessary debate i don't understand the controversy i don't understand the debate because the bible is so clear i mean it is 1 plus 1 is 2 kind of truth john 6:37 All that the Father gives to me, I will never drive away. Verse 39. And this is God's will. And God's will is a decreed will. It's an ordained will. When God has a will, He carries it out. It is concluded. When He said, let there be light, He wasn't hoping for light. He wasn't wishing for light. When He said, let there be light, there was light. When God wills it, it comes to pass. And God's will is that Christ shall lose none that God has given to Him, but that He will raise them up at the last day. Philippians 1.6, Paul's confidence in ministry was that He who began a good work will carry it unto completion until the day of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.18 Paul, talking about himself, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. There was tormentors from without, 
false teachers, false brethren. There was sin within Paul, and yet Paul's confidence was that the Lord will rescue him from every evil attack and will carry me home safely to God's kingdom. Hebrews 12.2 Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Salvation is a complete package. You can't rip it apart, tear it, tear it out, and, and apply some and reject others. He is the author and perfecter. So if a, a well-meaning, sincere believer studies the New Testament and they conclude that believers can lose their salvation, I have nothing to say to you. I really don't. I can't be more clear than the Bible. I just can't. There is no way to articulate or communicate the Bible in a more cogent manner because the Bible is so crystal clear. And you cannot be more clear than our passage this morning. Christ says, My sheep hear my voice. And he is contrasting the Pharisees, their unwillingness to believe in the testimony of Christ, nor the works of Christ. He said, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And he contrasts that with his own sheep. My sheep hear my voice. What is he saying? My sheep believe in me. They follow me. And then he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. I mean, He's God. He's the Father. And no one is able to snatch the elect, snatch God's people out of the Father's hand. I mean, that is clear. You don't need to read commentaries for these verses. You don't need to know Greek or or grammar. I mean, an elementary student can read this and come away with a right understanding of eternal security. In true Christians, the light of faith might occasionally flicker, but it will never be extinguished. Although believers occasionally fall into sin, God allows none of His elect to lose faith and finally perish Scripture certifies that Christ safely, that believers not just persevere, but Christ preserves each believer. Christ protects each believer from the moment of salvation until the very end when they are glorified and they enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, at this point, I need to digress. Some pastors digress unintentionally. Well, right now, digressing intentionally, and you'll understand why later on. With this, with this doctrine of eternal security, right next to it is a similar doctrine that we need to understand. And we need to understand to clearly separate the two. Right? Right next to eternal security, there's another doctrine that we need to distinguish it from. Now, to digress, I need to do a little sharing on fear. Okay? And this is the digression. Fear. Um, I looked up some phobias this week. A phobia is an intense or irrational fear of an object, person, organism, or situation to a degree that it interferes with normal life. 
and with modern psychology, all sorts of fears, phobias, have been legitimized, labeled, categorized um, to a point where there's over, I think, 1,100 phobias on, on medical journals, medical books. So, you know, you guys know what arachnophobia is? Right, fear of spiders. How about octophobia? Octophobia? Fear of the number eight. Okay? How about joeyphobia? Right? It's the fear of clowns. Right? So, <laughs> nothing against Joes of the world. <laughs> That's joeyphobia. And I'm positive no guy at Cornerstone has this fear. Cytophobia. Fear of food. Right? <laughs> and here we go. I don't think our sisters have this fear. Telephonophobia. I fear telephones, right? How about, let me pronounce this, I'm going to mess it up, arachibutyrophobia. It's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth, right? Some of you who are dating might have this fear, gamophobia, fear of marriage, right? That was a joke. <laughs> right? You're dating, you have this fear. All right, well, anyway, or pontophobia. Fear of everything. <laughs> you fear everything. Now, some of these fears are legitimate, some are not. There's actually a fear of sin, fear of death, fear of hell, fear of God. Those are legitimate. Some of these fears are illegitimate. Right? Like the peanut butter, roof of your mouth. Come on, just give peanut butter then. Just have a jelly sandwich. Right? Well, in this term of eternal security... And this doctrine that is next to it, there is a legitimate fear and there is an illegitimate fear. The legitimate fear is a doctrine that is next to eternal security, which is a doctrine of assurance of salvation. And that's a legitimate fear. The fear is whether or not you are a true Christian or not. You should fear that. That's not an illegitimate fear. Right next to eternal security, it only applies to true Christians. So, the, so our fear must be, am I in the flock of Christ? Am I a Christian? And that's something to be afraid over, to fret over. Paul tells the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10:12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're so spiritual, Christians at Corinth, they consider themselves pneumaticoids, uh, right? They're, they're the spiritual ones. They're practicing spiritual gifts. Their love for people are so great, they're tolerant of sin, right? I mean, they're just full of themselves with knowledge, with truth. Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, you should be afraid, because you might not be a Christian. 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says there, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Unless, of course, you fail the test, right? What's the point of knowing the doctrine of eternal security, if you're not a Christian, and Matthew 7, where these um, people come to Christ, and we all know this passage, Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles, be involved in ministry, prophesy, and Christ says, Ergon, never. You are never my, my people. You are never my disciples. Away from me, you are workers of iniquity. So that... That's a legitimate fear right next to eternal security. 
Now, in, in, the, in the doctrine of eternal security, there is an illegitimate fear. A fear wrongly placed. The fear that a believer can lose one's salvation. The fear that I am a Christian. I believe in Christ. I see holy affections in my heart. A desire for the glory of Christ. I have a love for the Word. I am bearing spiritual fruit. But what if I lose it? What if it is taken away from me? What if I am snatched out of Christ's hands or the Father's hands? This is an illegitimate fear. Now, what about you this morning? Do you have this fear in your heart? Do you struggle with this? Now, I believe some of you might disagree. No one, I don't know about no one, but a great majority of us would not disagree with the, disagree with eternal security doctrinally. If I were to ask you, interview you, do you believe once saved, always saved? You would say yes. Right? But, doctrine is not just what we profess, but doctrine is revealed by our attitudes. Right? What we really believe is revealed in how we live out our lives. What's in our hearts. Many times, we can profess one thing, but in reality, we don't really believe that. Because we don't really live by it. Um, so let me give you maybe six symptoms, not maybe, let me definitely give you, say, five symptoms um, of this unbiblical fear of losing one's salvation. And if you maybe have five, it's a full-blown case. You know, we need to go to, and call the ambulance and take you to ER quickly. You might have three, you know, or you might have one. But to, diff- to varying degrees, all of us have these symptoms. Number one, first symptom that you have a fear of losing your salvation, self-absorbed sanctification. Self-centered sanctification. You idolize your Christian life. Your life revolves around how you are doing as a believer. Everything is about you and your Christian walk. Concern for the lost? Hey, they're lost. i got to... I gotta worry about myself first. Concerned about your fellow believers? Come on. I gotta work on my own walk. They're not a concern or a priority for me. That's one symptom of fearing losing your salvation. Second symptom is wrong motivation for obedience and ministry. Wrong motivation for obedience, wrong motivation for ministry. The motivation behind your service is fear, is anxiety. Trying to please God with external service rather than faith. Being busy with activity, being busy with external service, external religion. But there is a lack of this personal relationship with Christ. Personal prayer, personal time in the Word really just a quiet, hidden obedience. That's lacking. And instead of focusing on that, you're focusing on just external godliness. Third symptom, no joy of salvation. No joy or lacking joy in salvation. Because in the hidden places of your heart, you see salvation as a a condition. 
You see salvation as conditional. You have requirements. You have your own standards that supersede the Word of God. You're, you're not resting in the faith of Christ. You're pursuing by works. Therefore, you're not a possessor of salvation. Therefore, there is no joy. There is no delight. There is no satisfaction. Really, there is no power of the Holy Spirit. There is no spiritual power in your Christian life. You're always just running and running and running, and you're not invigorated by the Word of God. Fourthly, no joy in evangelism. No joy in evangelism. You go out and you meet people and you share the faith and it is a chore. It is a task. It is a burden. Instead of going out and telling people the greatest news in the world, that Christ is the author and perfecter of salvation, because in the secret places you believe that we're saved and sanctified by works, it is not a great news. It is not good news. It is okay news. It is a burdensome news. Therefore, lacking joy in evangelism. Finally, no boldness for God's work. No boldness. You're, um, you're playing defense. You, you believe, God can't protect my salvation. God can't protect my faith. I need to protect my faith. Protect my faith from that girl over there. right? Protect my faith from this guy because this guy can stumble me. Or protect my faith from suffering or hardship, for you know, missions, evangelism, for ministry. I can't obey God and go all out because what will happen to my faith if I obey Christ? What if I lose my faith? If you have found any of these symptoms in your heart, in your life, I believe our study will be uh, a sweet medicine for you. You know, the first three parts, they were just like pounding sermons, right? Like, man, rebuking. And James is like punching me with spiritual punches. Well, today it's going to be like, you know, good, good dishes, right? It's going to be a meal, a sweet meal for all of us who are struggling with these things. Now, back to our text this morning. Our friends who disagree with us, our friends who believe that salvation can be lost, can be taken away, they say, they propose that our salvation can be taken away from one of the following. It can be taken away by people, taken away by circumstances, or taken away by God. Right? Like our faith. We can, we can stumble because of people. Or it could stumble because of trials in life. Or third, God just gets fed up with you. God said, you know, I was patient with you for five years. We're in our sixth year now. And I want our relationship to end. And He takes away your salvation. We're going to address these three one by one. We'll go to the first two and cover the last one next week. First one that a person or persons can take away our salvation. There are people around us, maybe it's true for you, influencing you to, to follow, follow them in sin, 
there are those maybe in your life who will love to sever you from Christ. They might be unsaved family members. They might be parents or siblings who are irritated to no end that you've embraced Christ. We've known people who've been put out of their family. And if parents had their way, they would sever you from Christ immediately. Not just family members, but the legalists, false teachers would love to separate us from Christ. The cults would like nothing better than for us to follow them and deny Christ. False teachers, what about yourself? Um, rightly view sin in your flesh and you say to yourself, I'm my greatest enemy. If anybody messes up this Christianity thing, if anybody drops the ball, if anybody screws this up, James Shen, right? I'm going to do something that I'm going to just blow up in my face. Right? I don't need anyone else's help to lose my salvation. I could lose it on my own. Or what about Satan? 1 Peter 5.8 says that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A right picture for our study in Gospel of John 10, right? The shepherd, a wolf, is prowling around. They're going to devour a sheep. And that's what Peter was saying. In fact, Peter knows what this, what this means because Satan asked for him. That's crazy, isn't it? Peter says, devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. I know this because he was trying to devour me. Remember Luke chapter 12? 22, Christ said, you know what, Peter? Satan came to me last night, and he wanted you. And Peter's like, you said no, right? <laughs> and Christ said, yes, I said no. You know, you belong to me. Um, you, will, you will struggle, uh, but when you have turned back, when you have repented, Christ caused Peter to strengthen your brothers. Well, what does Christ answer? To this threat of people, individuals, yourself, or Satan. Verse 27, 28. My sheep believe in me. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus gives believers eternal life. Present tense. Eternal life is the possession of believers. If you're a Christian... Your eternal life, salvation has already begun. We are the possessors of it. The Greek here, no one, is the strongest possible negative in the Greek. It's ume. No, never will anyone snatch them out of my hand. You want to note in, this, in verse 28, there are no conditions. Does not say they will never perish if, they do this. If they hold on to me, if they continue to be sheep, there are no conditions. Sheep are safe, not because we are holding on to Christ. We are safe because Christ is holding on to us. So as believers, no person has an authority. No group of people no organization, 
No cult, no religion is able to snatch believers from the omnipotent hand of Christ. That's what Luther said before the council in the Diet of Worms. They said, Luther, we're going to burn you and you're going to hell. And Luther said, what? No one can snatch God's sheep from his hand. I belong to Christ. You don't have that authority. Christ promised that no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is a divine promise. Well, okay. Well, people might not be able to take away someone's salvation, but certainly circumstances of life can. I think all of us, to a degree, fear this. That certain circumstances of life will cause us to fall away. Let me give you two categories of circumstances. The first one is suffering. Suffering. Um, We know that, and we're old enough now, that life is full of suffering. Life is a series of sufferings with moments of rest. Life starts out with suffering. It just stays there and it grows and grows until we die. Right? We realize early on that we're not special. Maybe some of us have entertained those thoughts in our lives where I'm special. Like, I'm not suffering. Maybe I have that unique gift from God where I won't suffer. Like my marriage will be perfect. You know, I have the most obedient, compliant children ever created, and I'll just just you know slide into heaven. A rude awakening, hasn't it been, right, for all of us? Um, no one gets a free ticket through life without suffering. And I'm not talking about just petty sufferings, like getting a traffic ticket or stubbing your toe on the you know, nightstand. Talking about the kind of suffering that maybe even our modern day, I don't know, Eric Clapton talks about. After the death of his young son, he wrote, Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knees. Time can break your heart. Have you begging, please? Begging, please. You know, I followed Clapton all the way from when he was with Cream. And I know, like, his songs a little bit. And he was a brash rock star. He was in the drugs. And, I mean, they called him just a master guitarist. And he was so confident. He can do all things. Like, there was nothing he can't do. He was so brash. And here he is. He lives his life. And he loses his son. And it was shocking for us to hear him write these words. A broken man. Broken by the sufferings of life. You know, but believers, we respond to suffering in a totally different way. Pastor John and Nancy Shim, they told us when their son was diagnosed with leukemia, a nurse left a message on their machine. I mean, what a horrible way. I mean, have the decency to you know, you know, come by and knock on the door and hold your hand and deliver such news. I mean, to leave, a, leave that kind of message on a machine... And to go through, and I was telling them how my dad was going through steroid treatment with prednisone. And John was saying, I know what prednisone is. I had to administer prednisone to my son every day. They said to us, God is sovereign. God is in control. This is what God deems best at this time for our son to have leukemia. See, for believers, we respond to suffering from a whole different paradigm. Because we're his sheep. Right? That's the plan of God. Ruth 121 says, The Almighty has afflicted me. 
In Exodus, God said, Have I not made the blind, the lame, the deaf? Job, did he not say, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away? See, believers understand that suffering, even though it's horrible and painful, God works for the good. God does. Romans 8.28 God causes all, uses all things for the good. All things. Panta there. For the good. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Book of James. James 1 Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, see, believers know this, unbelievers do not, cannot know this, but you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So believers, we know, suffering is not our enemy, Suffering is our friend because God uses it for the good and not good like the world's definition, good biblical definition, the good of becoming like Christ. Transforming us, causing us to grow in our faith. Well, let me go through what suffering does in a believer's life. Why suffering is good. Why as believers, we don't have to fear that suffering will cause us to fall away from Christ, when we suffer, we can be confident because God uses it for the good. First of all, it teaches us to hate sin. Right? Hate sin. That was my first response with John when we heard about Nathan's leukemia. Man, we hate sin. Sin, he's a jerk, right? I mean, just... I can't use bad words, but just, man, you just hate sin because you see the effects of sin. With my dad's illness, my response, man, sin, our mortal enemy, right? Disease, sickness, illness, sufferings of little ones, and ultimately death is caused by one thing, and that's sin. And in our sinfulness, we want to play with it, entertain it, toy with it, even commit it. But when we see suffering, when we experience suffering, we see the true nature of sin, that it's evil. And that we are to have only one response to sin, it's utter hatred. So suffering is good. Reminds us to hate sin. Secondly, suffering causes us to see sin that is in us. It causes us to, you know, can you handle the truth? Confront who you really are. You're a Christian for a while and nothing bad happens and you're doing your devotions and you're ministering to people and you're teaching and you have a lofty view of yourself. Wow, I've overcome these sins. I'm a mature believer now. And then you suffer. And then all this bitterness, resentment, anger, hatred, maliciousness, pride, self-centeredness wells up in you. And you're like, man, where did that come from? And you realize it was always there. Suffering didn't give it to me. Suffering brought it out. It brought out the mud and the mire that was already there in my heart. 
It is then that we can truly start to follow Christ. Truly start discipleship. And work on our character. And say, you know, Christianity is not about outward obedience. It's about my heart before Christ. It's about contentment. It's about satisfaction. It's about joy. It's about humility. It's about submission. And suffering gives, an, gives us an opportunity to truly grow in the faith. Right? Doing away with you know, playing religion and really growing as a believer. Thirdly, suffering is good because it drives us to God. It compels us to God. When everything is going well, we tend to sort of have to force ourselves to pray. Right? Just, oh, get up. You know, you push that snooze button five times already. The neighbors are waking up. So you just have to get up. And you just force yourself to get on your knees and pray. And you crack open that Bible and, you know, every other word you're falling asleep. But when suffering comes, man, you can't sleep. Right? You pray. You wake up. And your heart is, is, is moving towards God. In the Word of God, it just comes alive. You read, the, you read songs, and every word is precious medicine to the soul. Right? In prosperity, the heart is easily distracted. In prosperity, the heart is easily di- divided. Suffering cuts out all of that. Suffering drowns out the world and sends us singularly to God. Right? doesn't stumble our faith if you're a Christian. Suffering is our friend. Fourthly, suffering is good because it conforms us to Christ. Right? It helps us to experience the fellowship of the sufferings. Philippians 3. We begin to understand what it is to be hated by this world. We begin to understand that we're but pilgrims. We're just travelers, sojourners. And this world, all the pleasures, is not worth it. We begin to understand that our eternal home is what counts. Heaven. That our citizenship is with Christ there. We experience Christ. We fellowship with Christ in a unique way when we suffer for Christ. And that's one of the greatest benefits of cold turkey evangelism. You go out there and you share the faith, and they, be, they go, you know what? Praise God, I've been looking for someone to explain Isaiah 53 to me, at the Ethiopian unit. Can I, can I trust in Christ now? You're like, yeah. Hey, a, can I get baptized in your pool? Sure. What a blessing. Right? It hasn't happened to me yet, but if it happens to you, what a blessing. But, when you go out and someone says, leave me alone, they reject you. Right? They turn away from you. They tell you to go away. And they reject the message of Christ. It's still a blessing. Because at that moment, when we're rejected, we experience Christ's rejection. How He was rejected by this world. And that we're not friends of this world. That we're not friends. You know, we play sports with them. You know, we see movies with them. We eat with them. But we're enemies. It's all a facade. When it comes down to it, when the gospel is proclaimed, the true enmity comes out, and there's no friendship here. There's no camaraderie, right? We're, we're on polar opposites. And at that moment, we experience Christ. We awaken to the reality of our citizenship in heaven. 
Fifthly, suffering drives out sin. Drives out sin. Right? It purifies our faith. Suffering destroys our you know, foolish earthly dreams, our earthly ambitions. You know, ministry that is produced by pride, it gets rid of that suffering. It tells me, why, why am I ministering? Why am I evangelizing? Why am I following Christ? It purifies our motivation. It singularly goes back to Christ alone. Right? Suffering drives out sin. Suffering's good. It is really the only road to maturity. Only road to maturity. Well, we'll close our time here. Maybe just one application. I don't know who this guy is, but somebody quoted him, so I'll quote him to you this morning. He said, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And think about it. How much of our lives are driven by fear? Right? Think about that. Well, based upon this radical, simple truth this morning, that no one... No circumstance. And next week we'll learn, even God Himself, no one can take our salvation away. No one can. And next week's great, because even God can't, God won't. It's ours. I mean, it's the only thing that truly belongs to us. Right? All our possessions can be taken away. Our friends, family can be taken away. Um, our lives can be taken away. Our reputation can be taken away. The only thing that cannot be taken away is salvation. And that's the only thing that matters. Therefore, believers must not fear. Must not live in fear. Must not live with fear. That as we live lives, we should be the most bold, most courageous, most radical of all people. Because no one can take away our salvation. Luke 12, Christ said, Fear not the man who can take away the body, but fear the one who can take away the soul. He's talking to non-Christians. Well, for Christians, that's no one. Right? No one can take away our body, and no one can take away our soul. Dare I say it, you know, if I think about it this week and I'm wrong, I'll repent next week. But we don't even need to fear God. God promised He won't take away our salvation. God promised He won't lose us. So we don't have to fear God that He will, you know, fire us. You know, break off the relationship. You know, good sinner. Right? I'm impatient with you and you're still sinning. It's over. We don't have to fear that. Because God promised that no one can snatch us out of His hand. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank You. We're so encouraged by the Bible that the one thing that matters to us, the one thing that is the most precious thing in our lives, above even our family, our salvation can never be taken away from us. That it is ours as true believers that we are the possessors of it. So Lord, we pray that this would translate into our lives. 
This would move from our head to our heart to our hands. It would affect the way we live. Because of this awesome, heart-storing truth, Lord, that we would be bold in the way that we approach life. We would not be cowardly. We would not be adverse to risk. But Lord, we would push the envelope in every area for the gospel, for your kingdom, knowing that we are in your hands and you hold us firm. In Jesus' name, amen.